0: Now we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come and that you would breathe life into your word to us this morning. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I woke up this morning and chose violence. Uh, For anyone not familiar, that's a popular meme that's going around these days. And for anyone that doesn't know what a meme is, a meme is like an image or a, a video or a catchphrase or some text. It's often meant to be humorous, but it does reflect uh, an element of culture or a system of behavior. And then it goes, it gets imitated, it gets passed along and along and along until it goes viral, as they say. So, this meme I mentioned, this catchphrase, I woke up this morning and chose violence, is used to describe a person who uh, maybe means spirited a little bit, certainly chaotic, a person who specifically goes on to social media threads and starts commenting, throwing out uh, roasts or insults, slandering others, often without being provoked. It is meant to be funny, but it, it can be hurtful. But its relevance has now spread beyond just uh, the comment section and social media. Uh, for example, uh, a few years ago now, my garbage can my garbage can ripped the garbage bag for the umpteenth time so that I had to pick out all the garbage with my bare hands and put it into a new garbage bag. My garbage can woke up and chose violence. (laughs) That's how we use it. And in return, I didn't choose peace. I chose violence back. I took the garbage can and I sent it outside, then went to Costco and I bought a new garbage can and then I went outside got the old garbage can, brought it back inside so that I could put it inside the new garbage can to prove a point to the garbage can that it was now garbage. (laughs) Now There may have been some other stressful things going on in my life at the time. I may have been projecting on this uh, somewhat innocent, and I do say somewhat innocent, inanimate object. But I definitely woke up and chose violence. So this meme, uh, it is meant as a joke, and we can joke about it, but like all memes, it does reflect an element in our culture. Violence. Conflict. As I've shared before, I grew up in a country where if you were asked to describe it in five words, you would almost certainly say beautiful, but you would almost certainly also say violent. If we were to pick five words to describe Canada, we would probably also say beautiful, uh, but I don't think anyone would choose violent. Yeah, we do have a growing problem with violence here as well. It's just not as common. It's not as much of a focal point in our culture. It's not a part of our identity. I hope it never becomes so. Other than hockey, of course, which <laughs> we've mentioned. Um, but Canadians are still known as peacekeepers. We're known for our friendliness, for our politeness this does mean that we're also known for being particularly good at being passive-aggressive, throwing out small, subtle jabs that may go unnoticed but are still felt. And the problem with this is that sometimes when we do have disagreements, instead of facing one another, instead of talking about it face-to-face in a matter-of-fact way, there is a tendency to do violence towards one another behind the scenes, so to speak. Now, when I was a kid, uh, we were always being taught not to talk behind one another's backs, not to gossip, essentially not to bear false witness against each other, as we talked about last week. My father once told me it's a lot easier to get angry at someone behind their back than to say those things when you look them in the eye. At Regent, they told us, don't throw stones at straw men who can't answer for themselves, uh, especially when there's a fear that their answer might make some sense. However, as I say, these days, especially with the growth of the internet and social media, uh, this does seem to be the way that so many are dealing with conflict. These days, if you get angry at someone, you can easily tear a strip off of them, very publicly, but in complete safety and anonymity behind a computer screen. And we've seen this escalate so that so many kids these days, you know, they don't deal with playground squabbles like, like I mentioned I used to as a kid, it's all the cyberbullying that's going on. There's bullying on phones and on computers and on social media. And uh, it's very difficult for them. And it's something a lot of us can't even understand, really. We also know that there's this cancel culture going on, where if you disagree with someone, you just get a whole bunch of people to gang up on them online. And that can result in them losing their job, all kinds of things. So these are just a handful of the overabundance of examples that we could use to illustrate that we live in a world that is characterized by these kinds of violence, a world that's characterized by conflict, by rivalry, by selfish ambition that leads to these conflicts. And as we continue to see the connection between the Beatitudes that we've been looking at and the Ten Commandments that we looked at last fall, some of you may remember from our discussion on the Tenth Commandment you shall not covet, how we looked at how breaking the last commandment, wanting things, ambition, greed, really is the root of all evil. We saw the tenth commandment ties in to all the others. It is the root of most violence. And we can see this especially when we think in terms of trying to get what we want or need, or trying to keep something we want or need, even at the cost of what others want or need or what's best for others, even to the point of being willing to do them harm, whether physical harm or harm in some other way, whether emotional, psychological, or social. So today we turn to the seventh beatitude. We see what Jesus has to say about choosing violence, about conflict, rivalry, selfish ambition. And what he says should come as no surprise, as it's probably the best known of all the Beatitudes. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. For most people, the word peace usually refers to either some sort of inner tranquility, like a peace of mind, or some outward state, like the absence of violence or the absence of war. When Jesus uses the word peace in the seventh beatitude, he is referring directly to a state of peace that would have been well-known to his Jewish audience, a state of peace that's described by the Hebrew word, which some of you may be familiar with, shalom. Directly translated, shalom means soundness, well-being, it means wholeness. And we could spend hours, weeks, maybe even months Diving into what the Bible has to teach us about the shalom of God. But to try to put it into a minute or two, to put it succinctly, this shalom is life as God originally intended it to be. It was well rounded, complete existence, living in peace and harmony with the earth as we were created to do, with other human beings as we were created to do, with ourselves as we were created to do, and of course with God, as we were created to do. As our friend Darrell Johnson puts it, shalom is ecological soundness, relational soundness, psychological soundness, and spiritual soundness. It encompasses every dimension of life. It means political peace, no war, no conflict, safety. It means economic peace security, and stability. It means personal peace, being content with who we are no matter our situation, and living in perfect, peaceful, harmonious relationships with others. And it means spiritual peace, the confidence and security we have in knowing that our identity is in Jesus Christ, that we are loved by our Father in heaven no matter what. This is the shalom that God intended for us. This is the shalom we can find in him. But the seventh beatitude is not a blessing on those who have found or received this peace. Jesus is not blessing the peace finders. He certainly could and he certainly does elsewhere. But in the seventh beatitude... That's not what he's doing. Nor in the seventh beatitude is Jesus blessing the peace lovers or the peace seekers or even peace keepers. Again, he could and he does elsewhere. But in the seventh beatitude, Jesus is blessing peace makers those who create, those who develop, those who cultivate peace. And in a world that is characterized by rivalry, conflict, a keeper of the peace is rare, but a peacemaker is even rarer. So then how do we become not just peace finders or peace lovers or peace seekers or peace keepers, how do we become peacemakers? And again, our friend Daryl Johnson suggests these steps that you, there is a posture for, qualifications of, consequences of, the cost of, and steps to peacemaking. So we're going to have a look at those steps, unpack them, and elaborate on them a little bit. In order to become peacemakers, we do need a posture for peacemaking. If shalom is a gift from God, then it's a gift that can only be enjoyed like so many of the other characteristics described in the Beatitudes, in relationship with God. And as we've been observing, our relationship with God is that He is our God and we are His people. So being in relationship with God is being able to receive the gift of shalom. And it means allowing God to be our God. Allowing ourselves to be his people. Now, if we recall from our discussion on the 10th commandment, when we did look at how ambition or greed can be the root of all evil and sin, we remember that it was actually ambition. Wanting to be like God that led to the first sin, as we read in Genesis 3. So we can see that resisting God, not letting him be God, is then also the root of all peacelessness. And we don't have to think about that too hard to see examples of how violence, warfare, genocide are all the results of those whose ambition for power has taken over. The results of those who have forgotten that they are not God. So the posture of a peacemaker is letting God be God. The qualifications of a peacemaker are those whose character is described in the Beatitudes, the poor in spirit, who recognize and admit that there is violence in their own hearts, who mourn, who grieve over the sinful condition of the world. They are the meek, those who resist temptation to seek vindication, to seek justice when they feel that they or even those that they care for, which is the hard one for me, have been wronged. The qualifications of a peacemaker are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, who seek the good of others, the good of the whole world, not just their own empires, whether they're political empires or even our personal little empires. They're those who treat other human beings with respect, not just as pawns in some figurative chess game. The qualifications of a peacemaker are those who are merciful, who don't need to give others what they may deserve, but instead give to others what they don't deserve. Grace, pardon, kindness, love. The qualifications of a peacemaker are those who are pure in heart, who can't stand deceit or hypocrisy or manipulation, who can see when their own hearts may be leaning towards those crutches, those tools for helping us get what we want, who recognize their own ambition and their own desire for power and control, but can distinguish it from what God wants. They can distinguish it from God's will, and so they resist the temptation to move in that direction. The qualifications Of a peacemaker are outlined for us in the first six Beatitudes these statements of facts of the characteristics of those who follow Jesus but being a peacemaker also has consequences as Jesus shares in all the Beatitudes the first consequence is blessing blessing from God that's a good one being a peacemaker may also result in gratitude from others Approval from others, from other people, that's also good. But being a peacemaker can have the opposite effect. It can result in opposition. Because not everyone's going to agree that making peace is the best outcome. That the ones to whom we show mercy deserve it. Now another example of this is sometimes we view maintaining the status quo keeping things the same, not rocking the boat, as a means of keeping peace. And sometimes it is. But sometimes it isn't. If there's a serious issue that isn't being addressed, it puts pressure on those involved to compromise what is right or to silently comply with what is wrong. Being a peacemaker sometimes means facing a hard truth and choosing a difficult path. And this is especially evident, as we remember the 15-year anniversary of the formation of the Open Gate Church, along with the beginnings of the Anglican Network in Canada. One of the members of our church, Liz Gaunt, submitted a beautiful letter that reflects on this time, the many tremendous sacrifices that were made because the people of this church took a stand for what is right. Right. We remember the sacrifices that were made by Reverend Sharon Hayton, Reverend Andrew Hewlett, and all the people of the parish of St. Mary of the Incarnation, St. Mary's Machosen, who voted 85% in favor of leaving the Diocese of British Columbia to become one of the first three churches in Canada to join ANIC. All for the sake of staying true to the Word of God. And as Liz's letter reflects, this was a difficult journey and much was lost, including the beautiful church in Machosen that many of our people had a hand, a literal hand, in actually building. Peacemakers often meet opposition and sometimes they get hurt. If the first six Beatitudes describe the qualifications of peacemaking. The eighth beatitude describes the consequence. Blessed are those who are persecuted. There is a cost of being a peacemaker. The beatitudes serve as the introduction to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, and later in this sermon, as we heard in our Gospel reading today, Jesus teaches that if someone does us wrong... We're not to fight back. We're not to stand up for our rights. We are to turn the other cheek. Rather than fight for what's ours, rather than fight for justice or even for our dignity, we are to humbly lay down our pride and take a beating to take the bullets. Rather than seek conflict or vengeance, we are to love our enemies To pray for those who persecute us. Seek to make peace. And this does often mean a sacrifice. It means being willing to give up what we want, what we love, maybe even what we need. For the sake of others, there is a cost. The German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who is known for taking a stand against the Nazis in World War II, even though it cost him his life. He concluded that the disciples of Jesus make peace not by choosing violence, but by choosing to endure suffering themselves rather than inflicting it on others. This is what Jesus is describing when he says we should make peace, that we should be peacemakers. Like so many things Jesus says, that is a lot easier said than done. Talk is cheap. Actions speak louder than words. But of course, of course, Jesus didn't just teach. He didn't just talk the talk. He did walk the walk. When those who opposed Jesus had him arrested and hurled false accusations at him, he didn't fight to defend himself. He didn't even say a word. When the soldiers beat him, when the crowd and even criminals mocked him, when his enemies had him nailed to a cross in humiliation, he could have called down an army of angels to defend him, but he didn't. He was willing to sacrifice everything to make peace, and Jesus, the Prince of Peace, defeated violence. He defeated our selfish ambition. He defeated sin. And he defeated the consequences of all of these, death. So that even though, because of our selfish ambition, our desire to be like God, to resist God, to not let God be God, even though we have all separated ourselves from God and life with him, in his infinite grace and mercy, he has forgiven us. And invites us back into relationship with him, with him as our God and we as his people. But as the seventh beatitude explains, our relationship with God goes even beyond that. He has invited us to relationship with him, with him as our father, and we as his children. Jesus shares, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. The consequence for being a peacemaker is blessing, acceptance from God. And this blessing is that Jesus bestows this incredible dignity on ordinary broken human beings. He invites us to be called God's children. In Paul's letter to the Galatians, in which he deals with conflict over whether new Christians from non Jewish backgrounds should follow the Jewish laws of the Old Testament. Paul writes in Galatians 3, beginning at verse 26, So in Christ Jesus you were all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ... Then you are Abraham's seed and heirs, according to the promise. As children of God, we share equal status in God's sight. Paul goes on to say in Galatians 4, 6, Because you are his sons, his children, God sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts. The Spirit who calls out, Abba, Father, This equal status in God's sight is not an equal, lowly, humble status. It is a place of extreme dignity, a place where we are worthy to be invited and welcomed into relationship with God, into his holy presence, and adopted into his family. Paul's explaining to the church the crucial difference between the Old Covenant, the old terms of the relationship with God, and the New Covenant, the new terms. Life under the law was slavery, but life in Christ is marked by freedom that comes from being God's sons, God's children. And the Greek word that's translated as sons is kuioi. And we use this word because it's a legal term that does describe adoption. It talks about the inheritance laws of first century Rome. That's how the word was used. So Paul uses this term in his letters to explain the status of all Christians, men and women, who have been adopted into God's family and now enjoy all the privileges, the inheritance rights of God's children. That's the blessing that Jesus is talking about in the seventh beatitude, and what an incredible blessing that is. And this is why the seventh beatitude is probably the best known of all of them, because through it, Jesus does bestow this incredible blessing, this incredible dignity on ordinary human beings. Those who cultivate, promote, foster God's peace, God's shalom, this total well being ecologically, politically, economically, relationally, psychologically, and spiritually, will receive the ultimate reward of being called children of God, heirs to his kingdom, children who reflect the character of their Heavenly Father. We are all called to wake up in the morning and choose peace. We're all called to be peacemakers. Based on our discussion today, the steps towards being peacemakers are these. We must first acknowledge any resistance to God in our hearts and affirm our identity in Jesus. We are His people. He is our God. We are His children, His sons and daughters. He is our Father. We must also acknowledge any fear in our hearts that might lead towards suffering or conflict, acknowledge any anger in our hearts, whether against others, against ourselves, or against God. And we can then affirm the gospel again, the gospel of peace. That Jesus didn't just talk the talk, he walked the walk. Jesus sacrificed everything to bring peace to this world, peace between us and others, peace between us and God. And he didn't just talk the talk, he walked the walk with a cross. Over his back, he walked through the streets of Jerusalem. He endured a jeering crowd. He was willing to sacrifice everything for the sake of others. And Jesus asks us to walk with him, to do the same, saying, whoever wants to be my disciple must also deny themselves, must also be willing to sacrifice everything for the sake of peace and take up their cross daily and follow me.